Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. In the seventh episode of Series 3, we are considering operational resilience with a particular focus on the supply chain, outsourcing and third parties. And for this, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Rachel Walcott and Mike Cowan to take a look at the latest regulatory developments, the timeline to a raft of new reporting obligations and the need for compliance functions to be and to stay involved in all things operational resilience. Hi. Hi, Susanna. Lovely to join you guys. Thank you. Um, By way of a general definition, operational resilience is the ability of firms, financial market infrastructures and the financial sector as a whole to prevent, adapt and respond to, recover and learn from operational disruption. Specifically, an operationally resilient financial system is one that can absorb shocks rather than compound them. And that need for resilience encompasses pretty much every activity a firm undertakes, and it goes double for anything that is undertaken by a third party. The disruption caused by the pandemic showed all too clearly that it is critically important for firms to know who they are dealing with and to map exactly what is happening where and ensure that it is monitored, assessed and included in the risk reporting of the firm. Numerous regulators and policymakers have made operational resilience a key focus. And and I'm about to give you a complete alphabet soup. But everyone from IOSCO to ESMA, the FSB, the UK PRA and FCA have published updates and sought to raise the profile of operational risks with regard in particular to third parties. So, Mike, at a high level, what are all those policymakers seeking to achieve? Well, Susanna, I think that fundamentally that regulators are trying to refocus financial services firms, um, their interpretation of the risks involved with how they uh, predict, manage, recover uh, from business disruption, uh, whether that be large or small. I mean, I say refocus because for many years, the discipline of operational risk, which, as you say, covers pretty much everything that a firm does, barring financial stuff, but things like people risk and process risk and IT risk and cyber risk and data risk, the list goes on. I mean, these principles and the principles of operational risk have been around for some time. But there is evidence that um, the two disciplines of operational risk and operational resilience um, albeit overlap, but they are starting to integrate themselves as, as well. I mean, a survey that was conducted by the Best Practice Operational Risk Forum, uh, comprising risk professionals from more than 50 international financial services firms, noted that there was a steady progress in integration of operational risk and resilience frameworks. And frankly, so there should be. And this is, this is, this is, this is sensible because all operational resilience is, is pretty much looking at operational risks with a lens on what on um, on business disruption and the worst case scenario, I guess. So, um, as I said, many risks, many risks, many facets to operational resilience. Um, some of which we've covered in these podcasts with regards to data and cyber, etc. 
But I think what, I, what I'd like to do is I'd like to elaborate on three. And the three sort of revolve around, uh, as you've alluded to, the focus of today's podcast, which is third-party management, outsourcing, uh, and that sort of thing. So let, let's start with, 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 with that, with third-party management and outsourcing as the first risk. I mean, as the influence of digital solutions, fintech, the role of big tech, all of this grows, firms are more and more outsourcing key operational processes to third parties. Um, recently, IOSCO updated its recommendations for outsourcing. Um, and I'm just about to follow your alphabet soup, in fairness. Uh, but um, in Europe, both the EBA and ESMA have, have guidelines for firms on outsourcing and outsourcing to the cloud. Um, in the UK, the PRA are not only in the middle of implementing regulations on on the uh, the subject of operational resilience, but it has issued supervisory statement on outsourcing and third party management. Um, in the US, the FDIC, the Federal Reserve, and the OCC have requested comment on a new proposed guidance on management risks associated with third party relationships. I mean, these, these agencies already have guidance on third-party uh, management, third-party relationships. And these, this, this new um, uh, consultation that they've, that they've undertaken will eventually supersede those. And also in the States, um, the private fund managers that are registered with the CFTC will be required to demonstrate that they're effectively supervising third parties that perform compliance functions under guidance that was issued by the National Futures Association in September. So, as you say, a complete alphabet soup of, of, of regulatory guidance on third party management and how to manage third parties specifically in an operational resilience setting. But I suppose across all of these pieces of regulation, there are inherently common themes um, in which um, firms can control their outsourcing and third party arrangements. Um, and now, some of these are things like uh, due diligence. Um, the IOSCO report said uh, one, of the, one of its recommendations in the IOSCO report was um, a regulated entity should conduct suitable due diligence processes in selecting an appropriate service provider and in monitoring its ongoing performance. I mean, fundamentally, you don't want to go into business with somebody who you haven't checked out thoroughly, who may uh, fail the next week, or who may not deliver the objectives that you want them to deliver. Um, um, comprehensive due diligence is a big part of that. Um, negotiation and legal contract. Um, so once you've found your supplier, this you, you need to negotiate and put in place a legal contract that holds water. Again, the IOSCO make this one of their one of their recommendations. Um, it should enter into a legally binding written contract, the nature and detail of which should be appropriate to the materiality or criticality of the outsourced task. Um, then we've got things like oversight and monitoring. The relationship with the firm is obviously key. You know, for the host firm and the third party to have a close relationship is vital to the success of, of, of this and vital for the host firm to be able to call on the third party to uh, resurrect and, uh, uh, backups and systems um, when um, things happen, when disruption happens. And so oversight of this, um, of, of this arrangement needs to be um, um, thorough. Um, you need access for auditors, you need uh, access for compliance guys, you need uh, um, appropriate management information, regular meetings, and 
um, slick and efficient um, risk reporting um, 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 uh, systems that allow um, um, things that go wrong to be dealt with quickly and, effect and effic efficiently. And then I suppose finally is um, the termination angle to this, um, that a regulatory entity should have written provisions in relation to uh, the terminating of the outsource, outsource agreement. At the end of the, of the relationship, whether that should be at the end of the contract or more prematurely, uh, it is obviously not satisfactory for, for just both parties to tear up the paperwork and walk away. There needs to be proper th controls in place to consider confidentiality of data, um, repatriating, if you like, um, the, uh, the processes and the information that the two firms have, have, um, have shared. So there needs to be a proper exit agreement, a proper termination arrangement to the, to the, um, to the deal. Um, I didn't know whether at this point uh, you or Rachel wanted to to step in, Susanna, and have a ch and, and and speak about third parties a, a little bit more generally. Um, I can chime in on third parties. Uh, it's something that has come up. Uh, particularly post-pandemic and what regulators are calling it is uh, financial services supply chain risk. And it's something that uh, the Bank of England and the ECB, uh, essentially their heads of operational resilience, have uh, highlighted recently. Uh, they're worried about all these intertanglement of uh, relationships um, and they're uh, worried about uh, the uh, resilience of offshore arrangements uh, you know, what happens if one of these offshore providers has a, an outage itself um, but one of the things that uh, Klaus Zengler who's the ECB's head of uh, non-financial risk and operational risk and resilience uh, said recently was that the biggest operational resilience risk is the unknown issues for nine, for the financial services supply chain. Um, and he doesn't talk just about third party, he talks about fourth party and fifth party service providers, um, all the, all the different relationships and dependencies on other services, and he highlighted this and uh so did um uh, russell jackson from the from the bank of england that is that um during the pandemic this was something that has really attracted regulatory regulators attention and um one of the examples that zengler brought up was this you know big container ship that was uh blocking the Suez Canal earlier this year and what the consequences of that were. And he said that while a lot of us uh, worry about the big cloud providers and, you know, in terms of being too big to fail and concentration risk there, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, um, there are also smaller companies that provide services and we're, they're not really sure if they're systemic in nature. So that's something that he thinks firms should be thinking more about. 
And he also just said that, you know, firms need to refresh their memories about operational resilience to go back to the um, Basel principles. Don't wait for something to happen. Um, be prepared, he, he warned. And he, that was a message that both of these men really wanted to get across. Um, not only that banks need to be paying attention to it, but it was something that was garnering a lot of uh, regulatory attention. Um, do you want me to talk about um, more about the kind of EU take on uh, op resilience and cloud issues? Uh, yes, um, please. I or mean, did one you thing I would sort of add into the mix in terms of third parties in the pandemic is a number of firms found that, I mean, Mike was talking about oversight and monitoring, that depends on access. And the, that access was, in some cases, profoundly impacted by the pandemic. And for the future, firms do need to take, and it may well be badged as country risk, into account. Do you have sustainable access to your third party? And you may choose to have that as a factor in your part of your due diligence. And there are some financial services firms that have taken the decision to shorten their supply chains or even bring things back in-house simply because they did not have line of sight to what was going on during the pandemic because they had no access, no access at all. And so the, and that's back to keep your memory fresh, which was Rachel's point, because that memory may, might fade. But bear in mind the country risk with where you're outsourcing to if your third party is in another country, because you're not necessarily always going to have access. That's right, Susanna. And that's something that regulators have been talking about recently, too. And it's not just the country risk. It's the concentration risk in, in the country. Yeah. Um, you know, it. it you know, one location that has a lot of outsourced uh, service providers in it. That's something that firms should be thinking about. And, uh, you know, potentially one outsource provider has a lot of contracts with d different financial services firms. That's something else. Um, I think this is, you know, to the concentration risk point is that regulators are worried about um you know, a single firm uh, outsourced provider uh, falling over and impacting multiple firms in, in the system for a sustained time, uh, you know, making recovery from an incident more, more potentially more difficult and complex. Mike, do you want to chime in on concentration risk? Yeah, the, the the second one that I wanted to, that that we wanted to talk about really, uh, and I think Rachel's hit 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 the nub of it really. I mean, this is this this manifests itself largely in the provision of cloud, as Rachel's alluded to, and I know regulators are being quite um, keen to point out the risks with regards to concentration risks and the provision of cloud services, and. I, I believe in Europe, you know, the likes of ESMA have put forward proposals that would potentially mitigate this risk that, that there's, there's too many firms concentrated on one cloud provider. And um, with, uh, with proposals like, well, they should have a backup to the, initial, to the original provider and, the, uh, and this sort of thing, engage with a, with a secondary uh, firm. 
well, I believe that actually that's been met with some resistance in fairness because the, 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 the firms look at that and they think, well, that's, that's additional cost for us. Uh, and actually, that actually could um, increase the, the, um, the, the risk when it comes around any potential issue that's happening. Because if they can't get hold of one, they have to get hold of another and the timelines um, start to get elongated when actually they're trying to get back up and, uh, and running as quickly as they can for customers and stakeholders and shareholders' perspective. So um, as much as the cloud, uh, the, the, sorry, the concentration risk around the cloud is an identified risk that regulators are looking at it, it is still very much a, 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 just a, a subject up for discussion and is being met with a little bit of resistance from the, from the, uh, uh, from the, the industry. Yes, and uh, another thing uh, ESMA came out with, I think it was a couple months ago, was a, a paper about uh, concentration risk in cloud. And one of the things they suggested, which I'm sure every, all the cloud providers will be thrilled to hear, is that they need to be um, more resilient than firms to ensure the safety of the um, financial system, because uh, they, ESMA says that the threat to st financial stability, if there was a widespread out outage, would um, be very severe. Um, they want, uh, you know, the, the uh, cloud providers to increase their own. Uh, resilience and that way uh, that uh, that way it would deal with some of these you know threats to the financial system uh, so that was one of their suggestions I'm not sure what cloud providers made about that yeah and I suppose with cloud providers I mean we we, 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 we impinge and I don't intend to discuss it in great deal here I suppose but we impinge on the influence that then big tech are starting to have in financial services. Maybe it's not by the front door. Maybe it's not by setting up a financial services institution and going through the unnecessary approvals that that's, that, that um, requires, but by going by the back door, by setting up something that's more in their ballpark, which is something that financial services firms have to go to them to get. So the big tech firms suddenly start to have an influence in that way. Um, I um, I think we can we can move on because the third risk that I wanted to raise um, really was uh, a, around the proliferation of regulations. And, and again, we've mentioned this as we've been chatting in the last few minutes um, around uh, uh, the regulatory risk. So there is an increased regulatory risk for firms on operational resilience. I mean, more so than we've ever seen before. I mean, in the past, you know, continuity arrangements were within regulations as sort of higher level principles or best practice perhaps. But now we're seeing that pretty much all jurisdictions are issuing quite detailed approaches, detailed rules and regulations on how firms should manage their risks in, in, in this area. Um, you've got the Baal Committee issuing their principles, uh, the EU with DORA. Did you want to say something about DORA, Rachel, while we're here? Um, no, just to note that that was introduced last year. Um, it's you know, still moving through uh, the uh, European uh, system alongside some other packages, including uh, their cryptocurrency regulation and some other things like that. But it seems to be um, very wide-ranging 
and it's going to require almost every financial institution to have some top-down governance arrangements for IT risks, uh, business continuity testing, recovering planning, um, Contracts with third parties will need mandatory provisions similar to outsourcing contracts at present. Uh, and the European supervisory authorities will have a new overseer role subjecting critical IT suppliers to a union-wide oversight framework. So that's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> it's, but like I said, this is on the long road I don't know if this is in Lamafalusi land or, you know, how it is winding its way through the European machine, but it's something that uh, is definitely on uh, people's uh, radars, that, that's for sure. And you know, it, just to note here, it comes alongside some sort of, I don't want to call them side issues, but one of the things I was thinking about flagging up to note here is some of the work that the uh, European uh, Parliament and Commission are doing on uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And I think that, you know, might not be an operational resilience question uh, for firms now, but I think certainly in time, and it's not just the EU, the um, the UK is thinking about this too, and I'm sure, I, oh, and Germany, uh, I'm sure I'm... For, neglecting to mention loads of other ones, but this is something that's on the radar. Um, it's not just on the radar. It is here. Uh, we're talking about compliance of, around uh, artificial intelligence. And so firms are going to have to be thinking about that kind of technology and its resilience and reliability in how they're using it. And that comes with a lot of other things. So I think that would just be one of my potentially, I can't say potentially, that is a forward-looking statement. We'll see, you know, how the pigeons come home to roost on that one. Yeah. I think and, the other point might, might worth making is that all of this, sadly, on one level, falls into the purview of the compliance function. I'm not suggesting that the compliance function or even the risk function tackle this alone. It's solely their responsibility but it's a regulatory risk and also the, the, all of the things on the artificial intelligence, machine learning, API, whatever it is, compliance need to have this on their risk radar. They need to know how their firm is handling it. They need to be able to discuss with regulator or regulators exactly how operational risk and operational resilience risks are being handled. And then, of course, there are all of the new reporting obligations certainly coming in in the UK, and those almost certainly will have to have some sort of compliance oversight, if nothing else. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, um, and it's a very, it's a very good point, especially for UK-based firms, because uh, the PRA, Prudential Regulation Authority, are in the middle of consultation or in implementing their operational um, uh, regulations, shall we say. Uh, the key date being, or a couple of key dates really, but the first key date is 31st of March 2022, by which the PRA expect firms to have identified important business services, set tolerances, carried out mapping and testing, conducted lessons learned, developed communication plans and have 
self-assessment documentation in place. Now, we're led to believe from the regulator that it doesn't have to be absolutely, you know, um, um, 100% Rolls-Royce or Jaguar-esque, but it does need to be on the way to that to, to satisfy their requirements for that date. And then beyond that, they, you know, they say that, that, that things really need to be in place um, by the end of, by no later than the 31st of March 2025, which seems quite a long way away, but in something as, as big as, the, as putting in place um, operational resilience procedures, you know, for large firms, that can be quite, um, uh, quite a challenge. But nevertheless, I think what the PRA have put their foot on the gas on this one and, uh, and UK-based firms, and therefore I assume that if they're looking at the UK-based firm, then there needs to be some link to um, firms that are associated abroad. Uh, they need to have put these things in, 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 in place, um, um, well, pretty much by 2025, but realistically to, by showing prog significant progress by March 2022. Um, I think it's worth also mentioning just finally, I mean, we, 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 uh, Rachel did a very good job of, of describing the European situation. Uh, the, the US regulators also have, have their um, approaches to uh, operational resilience, the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, all of which have papers out and approaches to operational resilience, third parties and the like. Um, and like I say, it's a, it's a global thing with, I mean, we've reported on this podcast before, places like Hong Kong and, um, and Ireland where they have consulted and are in the process of putting in place operational resilience uh, processes or at least amending ones that were already there. So as I said, coming back to the regulatory risk part of this, this is a real global thing, many regulations out there. And to underline what, what Susanna's been saying, um, there's a real need for compliance officers to get their their arms around this to make sure that all the relevant regulations are being complied with in the appropriate timescales. So I suppose as a final point for me on this point is to pick up on the reg on the uh, the incident reporting point because the Financial Stability Board in the last um, um, uh, couple of months has issued um, has continued its work on operation resilience by issuing a report on cyber incident reporting. Now, in the grand scheme of things, this may sound quite low beer stuff, but actually it's quite, uh, it's quite important. Um, the FSB have concluded that, that there needs to be greater convergence um, um, across jurisdictions, um, given the plethora of reporting data that exists. Uh, the report's essentially a stock take of existing supervisory and regulatory practices um, but in areas like reporting itself, measurement of severity and impact, the timeframes for reporting, and how the cyber incident information is used, they saw um, that there could be a standardization of approaches across the, the, these areas uh, to make the actual reporting of the incident more uh, efficient and more effective. Now, the FSB at this stage don't offer any real solutions to this. There were In the paper, there were a number of, of suggestions and areas for improvement. But they've taken it away to, to, to develop best practice, to identify some common information types, and to create some common term, terminologies uh, with regulators and regulatory jurisdictions uh, around the world. So more on that one in the new year, I believe. And I think that's a really good point, Mike, because any kind of reporting 
is well, any kind of complex or new reporting tends to be a challenge for firms. Uh, we've had uh, he, uh, a lot of uh, enforcement and uh, regulatory actions around uh, re just reporting kind of generally everything from swaps reporting in the U.S. to um, uh, some of the uh, prudential reporting here in the U.K. Uh, Amir reporting is an ongoing data quality problem. But, you know, what it, com what it comes down to is not having some, some you know, standards. Uh, if uh, regulators receive a bunch of uh, operational resilience or cyber incident reports that talk about things in all different ways, it's going to be difficult for them to understand what's going on from the report. So I think that's definitely one to watch. I know the uh, some firms are already doing uh, this, not doing this kind of reporting in the UK, but you know, just the stuff that gets reported to um, the FCA, for example, is different, difficult to parse. Um, it's difficult to you know just see from an outsider's view what's a cyber incident, what's you know what kind of cyber incident was what was an op what was an operational issue in terms of IT um i mean obviously they don't want the general public knowing all about it but you know, i'm sure a lot of these firms are thinking about these incidents in different ways and having a, a framework and a map and some terminology is go is going to help I think it's absolutely going to help. And one of the many lessons from history to pick up Rachel's point about reporting challenges is that for whatever reason, reporting and the gathering of data for reporting and the efficacy of reporting seems to be a poor relation with firms. They don't make it a priority to do it really, really well. And my evidence for that is the whole series of transaction reporting fines, particularly here in the UK, where under both the first MIFID and MIFID 2, firms manage, oh, sorry, certainly MIFID 1, we haven't seen fines under MIFID 2 yet, firms managed to completely stuff up transaction reporting twice. And we were into basically intergalactic telephone number fines, mm -hmm. and still firms were getting it wrong. Yeah. So... If you can take a lesson from history, and this is again, I think, where compliance can play a really key role, take the reporting requirements that are going to come out of all of these consultations on operational resilience seriously and do the data gathering and the reporting well first time. I mean, the old rule of thumb is that it, you know, if you get fined for something, it costs you 10 times that amount to fix it. So it is way cheaper in the in the long run to get it right first time. So if you possibly can invest upfront to get the reporting sorted, because otherwise you are creating a whole world of pain for yourselves down the down the track. And and I'm definitely repeating myself. Compliance can really make that happen and make it happen well first time. Because um, it's not easy and it's not consistent across jurisdictions and it needs to be invested in and made a priority. Yeah, another observation about reporting, not to go completely down this rabbit hole, is that 
not only is it expensive to fix, it takes a long time to fix. I mean, that's one of the lessons from the MIFID-1 uh, transaction reporting fines. These fines often were a decade in the making. And I think where firms might have it slightly easier um, on operational uh, resilience uh, reporting and incident reporting is that it's not going to be as much of a movable feast as uh, transaction reporting. You're not going to be having, you know, all kinds of different and new types of incidents uh, cropping up all the time. You, there might not be as many ways to get it wrong because, you know, for example, in the the trade reporting, uh, transaction reporting uh Templates. I don't know. There's like now. There's I, I want to say 85 fields to fill in. It's it's really difficult, and people are developing new products that need to be, uh, to be uh, programmed into the reporting system and stuff like that. So hopefully it won't. I don't know. Like I somebody call in and or I don't know. We don't have a phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody write in to Susanna. Yeah, there are, uh, there are mul- let me be very clear, there are multiple fields on transaction reporting. But yeah. you know what? The things people were getting wrong were not the difficult things. You know, yeah. knowing what date it is, isn't difficult. Knowing what currency the trade is in, isn't difficult. I mean, it wasn't the finer points of interpretation that people were mucking up on this. It mm. was wholesale inattention to the detail. Yeah. Um, and I would, just suggest get this right first time and you are going to be such a good place or have some kind of template you know have your template acknowledge that it could be a movable feast and that you need it to be a, a bit dynamic to take into account the fact that a lot of times regulations change which is probably an understatement of the decade but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the understatement of the decade. And, and on that, um, takeaways, takeaways for compliance officers. Mike, particular takeaways on op resilience and supply chains for compliance officers? So uh, on the whole thing, on all of what we've been discussing, I think the point that I want to make is around risk frameworks, because I think for risk and compliance officers within firms, it's very important that they're uh, risk frameworks um, reflect the uh, the needs, the the the, the priorities, the operational resilience brings with it. Look, in some in, in in many firms, this will be a tweak. It will be an amendment rather than a complete rewrite of a risk of, of a risk uh, management framework. Because as we've as we've said, uh, operational risk has been around for a number of years, and it's really just a refocusing of operational risk on operational resilience matters. Um, and but nevertheless, uh, you know, it is worth it is worth looking at the risk framework from an operational resilience perspective um, uh, to make sure that all of the relevant regulations are being uh, um, accounted for within your risk uh, methodology. So what am I talking about here? Well, some things maybe to consider are uh, uh, to review the terms of reference of some key committees, your risk committee maybe, to make sure that, that those things are reflected. Uh, operational resilience is reflected in those. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps a job description for a, 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 a operational risk manager or or some other manager may need need tweaking. Uh, the risk taxonomies need to be re- be reflective of uh, the uh, operational risks that that are there, as well as risk the, the more detailed risk registers. 
risk and control self-assessment tools whereby risks are allocated to operational managers and then tested in the in the first line potentially they need to be reviewed to make sure that you that the risk department the compliance department are getting the correct information around how uh, risks and controls are operating on operational uh, resilience and then compliance and audit plans obviously need to be need to be tweaked as they would be anyway i'm sure on an annual basis to make sure that uh, the higher the, the higher risk areas and the higher risk regulations are being uh, uh, complied with and are being controlled um, effectively. Um, so I think my first point, and this is uh, and that's my overarching point, that firms really need to apply their risk frameworks, up, apply operational resilience to their risk frameworks. And I think on a second, more detailed point is that, and it sort of alludes to the discussion you've just had on. Um, on uh, reporting and the difficulties that can get into. And I suppose my message here is one for the FSB and one for regulators in that when it comes to operational matters, firms will already have key risk indicators that will try and um, set thresholds for when certain things are getting too close to becoming an, an issue, are getting too close to becoming an incident. And... Um, um, now, I'm not saying that those things need to be reported to regulators, but firms will want, there should be a, a, a smooth transition between firms identifying an issue through their internal reporting mechanisms and then the information that is then sent on to the regulator um, to notify them of the of the, the incident and, and what is happening. So it's not only sitting outside the box looking in to say, we want this, we want that. A lot of the stuff that the firms um, generate internally could also be used to um, smooth that um, uh, uh, that uh, the, that convergence that the FSB were talking about. Yeah, wise words, very wise words. Rachel, takeaways for compliance officers. Okay, well, I think I'll continue on my team uh, theme of it's it's not it's never over, <laughs> and. Uh, the you know kind of the operational resilience theme has just exploded. I would say over the last I don't know two years at, at least, and it kind of has its at least in the UK it has its roots in um, some of the big high street banks having their you know, customer facing uh, IT systems fall over. Excuse me, this could be cash machines could be online banking. So that's that's been a serious thing. And we've talked about TSB before. I think that really crystallized uh, regulators' minds when they have this big uh, IT migration a couple years ago. And it, I mean, it essentially, it couldn't have gone any worse. I mean, I think we can safely say that. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Uh, so having said that, um, uh, the HM Treasury's wholesale market review, uh, which their, that consultation closed recently, but one of the things it also highlighted amongst everything else, and this is sort of their MIFID rebrand partly, was um, they set out some requirement, or no, MIFID 2 sets out some requirements for venue operators and firms to be resilient and maintain market integrity. But in light of some of the uh, market infrastructure outages that we experienced uh, in 2020. Um, HM Treasury wants to bring some clarity about market operators and participants' roles during an outage that 
maybe preventing trading and it's suggesting amongst other things, implementing a playbook for farms to follow it in an outage and resume trading more quickly. So the treasury is worried about this. Um, we mentioned more consultations, more reporting, uh, on the, uh, critical third parties theme, uh, people can expect a discussion paper from UK regulators next year to, uh, talk about future uh, regulatory proposals uh, relating to critical third parties, um, particularly on technically complex areas such as resilience testing. And we mentioned reporting. Uh, the regulators here will be consulting on operational incident reporting and outsourcing and third-party risk management register. This is coming in the first half of the year. Um, the incident reporting uh, consultation will look at what firm, what information firms should be submitted by banks and insurers when operational uh, incidents occur. So that will, uh, I don't know how much of this will be talking about standards and talking about uh, doing reporting in a uh, harmonized way, but uh, I know. Uh, that data standards is something that the bank and the FCA, the PRA, are looking at, you know, in a separate stream of work um, having to do with um, regulate, digital uh, regulatory reporting. So, you know, I guess uh, more fun to come for operational resilience fans. Yeah, I mean, nothing is certain except the change, I think. Um, <laughs> And, and, and with that, thank you so much, Mike, and thank you so much, Rachel. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. We do hope you found it both interesting and useful. As ever, I'll include some links to a couple of articles that go into a bit more detail on the issues discussed and a link to for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. As ever, we would very much appreciate it if you'd take the time to review the podcast and let us know of any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.